This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from 2019's Idea Fest, a two-day event at UW-Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, the news media's credibility crisis. Cap Times investigative reporter Caitlin Farrell sat down with three journalism leaders and researchers to discuss what news outlets should do to stay credible in an age of alternative facts. I'll let Caitlin take it from here. My name is Caitlin Farrell. I'm an investigative reporter here for the Cap Times. Um, and today we're going to be talking about credibility in the media. We have a great panel. Um, I'm going to introduce them. And then the format of this is I'll direct a question to them, um, and or one of them individually. And then we'll do kind of group general questions. And then we'll take some questions from the audience. So um, our first panelist is Zach Kucharski. He's the executive editor of The Gazette. It's a newspaper based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And he's been involved with the Trusting News Project. And that's a national organization that holds trainings and does education about how newsrooms can help enhance credibility. Um, we have Dr. Katie Culver. She's, in a, she's a professor here at the University of Wisconsin um, Journalism School and does a lot of work with developing journalism curriculum and does ethics work as well. And then our panelist um, on the end here is Farhad Manjou. He's a columnist with the New York Times and often write, writes about the intersection of media and technology. Uh, and prior to that, uh, Manju wrote at Slate, Salon, and the Wall Street Journal. And so um, maybe we're going to start, I think, with Zach here. Can you just first tell us a little bit about the Trusting News Project? I think I don't know that many people really know that something like that exists. And so if you could talk about how it got started and why we need it. Absolutely. Um, so uh, our newsroom got involved in the Trusting News Project about about two years ago, um, and it, it's a, a program through the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the University of Missouri, as well as uh, API, American Press Institute, I believe is the current acronym. Um, acronyms change uh, sometimes, and I don't always catch them. Um, but we got involved because it, it's a, a program that's really meant at giving practical advice uh, to newsrooms about uh, closing the canyon that exists uh, between how we go about the job that we've done, uh, and how the public interprets the work that we do. Uh, and uh, from my perspective, there's a huge canyon that exists uh, in the middle. Um, and so the Trusting News Project is a coaching opportunity that exists um, for newsrooms anywhere of all different sizes, and you conduct different experiments, and you see what works in your markets. Uh, and it's really meant to be a transparency, so it's about explaining what we do, how we do it, why we do it, um, kind of our processes, um, and, and it's meant to kind of uh, put more emphasis on explaining what we do. And how has that gone so far? Um, so it's, a, it's one of these projects that's a never-ending thing. Um, it's a philosophy. Um, and Joy Meyer, uh, who's headed up this project, is a, a huge proponent of um, engagement in journalism. And so for us, this is something that's never going to, you know, it just becomes a part of our DNA. 
Um, and so we need to understand, we need to be tracking things. So, um, you know, a, a nerdy behind the scenes thing. On our opinion page, we had a problem where we had too many white male uh, guest opinions. So let's put some analytics in place to be measuring that as we go each week, how many of those are we including? Um, and so that becomes an example of behind the scenes something that we're using to make sure that we're you know, diversifying. But then as we go through our reporting, let's explain what we know, how we know it, what gaps do we have in our knowledge. Um, and so that's something that in our presentation of stories, we put alongside of that. Um, and you know, that's something that I would say we still have a lot of work to do uh, bringing that into the print product, um, but it's worked really well kind of natively online where you can just build it in a template and kind of grow it from there. Cool. Um, I'm going to skip over to Farhad. Um, speaking of opinion, that's mostly what you're doing these days, writing about opinions. And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about um, how you see your role kind of in the larger ecosystem where I think there's a lot of conflation, you know, sometimes a lack of understanding about what what news writers do versus the editorial side of the paper. There's people who think that opinion ends up infusing news and reporters do that intentionally. And so, you know, how do you think about the role that you have when we have this really, this proliferation of opinion kind of coming at us all the time? Yeah, in the in the past, in sort of the, the pre-digital age, I think we had this um, fairly clear line, especially when we got our news from newspapers, uh, where, you know, the opinion section was separate, physically separate, on different pages. It uh, was very clear what uh, the opinion was uh, versus, like, sort of the front page news. And um, on the Internet, the Internet sort of destroyed all those divisions. So, you know, there are newer uh, publications where there aren't any of these distinctions. Like, if you read something like Vox, for example, um, it's a it's a source that has news, uh, but all the news stories are kind of infused with uh, people's points of view. Um, it's it's much more like how uh, the news used to be, kind of uh, back a hundred years ago. Like you know, there were partisan newspapers, there were lots of different kinds of news outlets. Um, the what happened in sort of the intervening time is we got this uh, uh, narrowing of news sources. Back in the you know 20, 30 years ago, we had uh, you know only a few uh, sources on TV, a few channels, and then you'd have like one or two newspapers per town. And uh, in that era, the news became somewhat, there, there became this kind of uh, cult of objectivity, I call it, where, you know, people had this idea that you could present a news product that was from this kind of uh, nonpartisan point of view uh, where, you know, reporters went out, presented facts in a way that uh, everyone would think is objective. I think there's a lot of research that suggests that, you know, no, readers didn't really uh, uh, appreciate it that way. You know, people always think the news is kind of partisan depending on their uh, points of view. Uh, and so now we're in this time where we have both new news products like Vox, as I was saying, that, um, or just like Twitter, you know, the internet in general, where there's opinion everywhere. And then you have kind of uh, legacy news products like the, like the New York Times, uh, like the Washington Post, and others that are kind of struggling to figure out how to present these differences. So, you know, I was in the newsroom at the New York Times for five years, um, and I've just gone to the opinion section, um, and they're totally different worlds. Like, uh, the, the opinion section at the Times is on a different floor. Uh, it's run by a different editor that's completely separate from the newsroom structure. Uh, they're completely separate. Um, 
uh, but it's not obvious to readers in any way. I mean, it says opinion on, on our uh, uh, stories, but uh, I don't think that's kind of clear to readers often that difference. And, um, you know, especially at places that have uh, a vast difference between uh, the opinion section and the news section, like the Wall Street Journal, for example, has a, you know, very conservative um, opinion section and a, a well-respected uh, news division. You know, they broke like the Stormy Daniels story, for example. Uh, there, it you know, it becomes harder uh, for readers to kind of see those differences. I think we're really battling with that. Um, when I, I mean, I, uh, as a as an opinion writer, have had to kind of figure out how to present myself in a different way, uh, how to kind of write in a very takey way. Um, and uh, I think it's a kind of a struggle for a lot of people. I feel like in the long run, these divisions will kind of go away, even at um, you know places like The Times. Like, I think that it's a matter of kind of trusting readers to figure out uh, when you're presenting uh, kind of uh, a news, pro uh, like a very kind of objective news story versus um, uh, an opinion. And I think those divisions are kind of blurry to begin with. And uh, as people get more sophisticated, we'll kind of understand how that works. But right now, I think we're in this uh, really um, frustrating and confusing for a lot of people kind of middle period. Yeah, I think you, you said so many interesting things. And one of, one of the things was the cult of objectivity. Let's talk about that some more. Do you, Dr. Culver, how do you um, address that? And um, maybe with your students, or do you have any thoughts just on um, you know, maybe that and how that works with developing curriculum and how we're teaching the next generation of journalists to produce really good work in an era where there, there, are, there is this division. How do you, what do you think about, yeah, about well, that? Yeah, well, when I'm, when I'm trying to sell students on going into newsrooms and do the, doing this important work, I try to avoid use of the word cult. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> mission, <laughs> vision, those are much better words public service. Um, so I, <laughs> I would say I'm, I'm, I've been doing this for a while now. I was, I was a journalism student. I've been teaching journalism students for about 20 years. And I, I think there's been a pretty seismic shift in how we approach credibility um, and trust in news with students. You know, for, I, I still say and forever have said that credibility is a fickle dance partner. <laughs> like it will desert you in a minute. Um, because people who are reading or consuming your information, they're smart people. And when they see you make a mistake, they're going to believe that you are making lots of other mistakes. So if you quote me as Kathy, and I'm the mayor, and they know my name is Katie, they're gonna say, well, how do I know that the quote is right? <laughs> like, the, you know, you, you, when you make a mistake, you can lose credibility so quickly. And I think that's still absolutely true today. But I think where we've really shifted um, in our journalism school, and I think a lot of other ones, um, is that credibility and trust have to be earned. <laughs> We're talking about that so much more now. I mean, I, when I was in a newsroom in 1988, you know, I, I was one of the only games in town for people to get their information. And now there's so much more competition from other outlets, from partisans, um, from, you know, well, actually, there's competition from like cat videos on YouTube, right? Like we're trying to get that attention and those eyeballs. But now you can't assume that people trust you or that people find you credible. There are 
vicious attacks on news media that are happening. And so things like the Trusting News Project are so important. And we teach that to students that, you know, being transparent about your decision making, having, um, you know, having conversations with the people that you're trying to serve. Don't just assume they're coming along with you and trusting you because you're you. Um, I'll give a really great example that we use, I use in class from the Trusting News Project. And it comes from the Virginian pilot after the Virginia Beach mass shooting. Um, they went through a very, very in-depth internal newsroom struggle about whether to name the person, the, I don't like the word shooter, but the per person who had committed those killings. And um, they were, because I, I don't know if you know, there's this big criticism about how much glory we give to these people who commit these atrocities, and that just, it can be very painful for the families of victims and others just to see them named. You know, it's like giving them this, you know, they're all center stage, so don't name them. Um, don't make other people believe that they could get that glory by doing the same thing. But, you know, in a newsroom, it's like, you know, someone did something, we name them. Like, that's normal. We just do that. And the pilot had this really in-depth internal discussion, and I was so struck when I went, I like when things happen. I love the New York Times, but I try not to just read the New York Times. I try to go to the local news outlet and see what they're doing. Their information is often better, sorry. <laughs> so they know the police chief. And so I went to the pilot and the top part of the story was the was like three paragraphs from the editor um, explaining why they were in this story naming this person. And I was absolutely struck. And then I went to the Trusting News Project and looked at their partner news organizations. And of course, the pilot was one of them. So they had been through this sort of training and conversation about how to let the public in on this. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that their credibility and trust went up because they made that that effort to inform people. And I think that's a really powerful lesson for students to come up and say, yeah, don't make mistakes because that squanders your credibility. But also think about the ways that you're going to go out and actively earn that credibility and earn that trust. Yeah, I think one other element that, of course, I think is integral to the way that journalists are doing their job today is social media and Twitter and Facebook. And we're either kind of calling those platforms for different opinions and perspectives potentially or advancing our own work and trying to drive readers to that. Farhad wrote what was, in my opinion, a really great column about Twitter um, right after the Covington Catholic incident um, where there was that altercation with a group of students on the National Mall in DC. And I think that that incident and the way that the media responded on Twitter actually should be a case study for every in every journalism class in America and that newsroom should be discussing it. But I'm wondering maybe we could start with Farhad, sort of what your thoughts are about the way that um, we see social media really disrupting what can be good journalism. I mean, you had some great lines. You talk about the way that digital media can short circuit our better instincts in favor of mob and bot-driven groupthink and that really Twitter prizes image over substance and cheap dunks over reasoned debate, all while severely abridging the temporal scope of the press. And so I, I thought those were great lines. And you know, and a lot of the use of this is really heavily encouraged in newsrooms, both at a national level and a local level. And so, you know, how do we how do we deal with that and not knee-jerk react at an incident where I think that really hurt the press's credibility, the way that national outlets reacted to that. Yeah, Twitter is this really interesting uh, social network, which is uh, basically not used by a lot of people, uh, except for journalists um, and, politicians. <laughs> and politicians. Well, the politicians use it because the journalists use it. Um, it's, it's become this, uh, I mean, it's sort of this, like, 
clubhouse for journalists uh, and politicians who want to get to them and sort of marketers. Uh, it's something like a cross between, you know, a wire service where you get lots of news stories and um, uh, kind of a professional network for journalists. Like one of the things that it has become for journalists is a way to uh, get notice and then get hired by people and kind of get noticed by different newsrooms and you know your profile on on Twitter is today kind of at least as important uh, as you know the actual work you do um, and kind of selling your stories is is a, is a key part of how you succeed as a journalist and um, you know some of those functions are good in in breaking news situations you you get to see what's happening very quickly you you can contact sources quickly um, you can kind of get all a lot of different aspects of a story um, more quickly than you could in the past um, on the other hand it's uh, because of the kind of the mechanics of how Twitter works um, it it can be very easy to fall into, as I said, like groupthink. Um, so a lot of people kind of collectively kind of come to an opinion about something, um, you know, even before all the facts are in. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're working as a reporter, you're supposed to kind of go out and, and search for facts, you know, in a, in a more, um, just a more rigorous way than you can on social media. And uh, Twitter often kind of short circuits that. I mean, even, you know, not deliberately, I think people kind of fall into uh, what a lot of people are saying on Twitter, um, not even to kind of form opinions, but just to ca kind of gather uh, what's important. So, you know, you'll see often a, uh, a tweet or a, a story trending on Twitter, and then you'll see, you know, sh soon after that, kind of every digital newsroom have, has a story about that thing. Um, and the reason that it's there is because, like, Twitter's algorithm has determined that that's a popular thing has posted it to a lot of users uh, users have like re retweeted that and then that's a signal to journalists that that's a, a, a topic to cover like it's weird to me that like a tech company's algorithm is determining like what a lot of newsrooms in, in the United States are covering but that's kind of how it is um, and then and and that that informs uh, like a pretty much everything you see on cable news every night like the how how cable news producers determine kind of what they cover on uh, on on TV um, is they you know look at Twitter and they kind of book guests on Twi from Twitter or like get themes and ideas from Twitter um, and that has uh, you know in a, in a very uh, in a way that you can tell if you follow Twitter, it kind of forms, what happens on Twitter is like sort of narratives form and talking points form, and then they kind of get uh, disseminated to the rest of the country through cable news and Facebook and other places. Um, and so Twitter has become this place where you can kind of infiltrate the news in a very, uh, you know, if you're, a, if you're a political group, if you're a partisan group, if you're a marketer, if you're like the Russians, if you're uh, someone that wants to change what people are talking about in, in, in America, uh, infecting the conversation on Twitter, um, you know, either in kind of legitimate kind of marketing ways or through, you know, bots and other things that kind of hack the conversation, that's a very good way to kind of in infiltrate the conversation. Um, and, you know, the chief reason this happens is because journalists are essentially like addicted to Twitter. Uh, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time on Twitter. It's if you're if you work in a national newsroom, it can be very um, tempting to spend a, you know all your time there, uh, and it's fun for a lot of people. Like a lot of people in journalism, 
are in this business because we like the news and we like following the news and talking about the news. And this is like the clubhouse to do it. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's, and, and the other thing is like newsrooms tell people to do this, right? So like, you know, newsrooms want their journalists to be on Twitter to, because you got a profile there. And so I think that all these factors together, you know, lead to this um, kind of dangerous uh, dynamic. And the way, the way to stop this, I think, or make, you know, the power of Twitter kind of, uh, to reduce the power of Twitter is for journalists themselves to kind of pull back from Twitter. That's what, you know, I've tried to do that. Um, a number of other journalists I know have tried to do that. Um, it's difficult because it's kind of where all the action's happening. Um, but I think that's kind of the long-term best course for, for us in our business. Any guys have thoughts on that? Yeah, so <laughs> this title could be Katie's Ethics Concerns About Journalism and Twitter, and we'd be here all damn day. <laughs> um, so, and I have a little guilt because when the Cap Times was making its transition from being a dominant print outlet to online, I was there offering some advice, and I was like, yay, social media, Twitter, go, go, go. And now, like, oh, guilt. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I really, you know, to newsrooms that emphasize Twitter, the very first point I would make is why are you giving so much attention to something that has only 8% of the public on it? Like why, why are you letting that determine your news agenda to the extent that you are? And believe me, it's happening. I'm sure it's all great with our, with our beloved Cap Times, but that it's happening in every newsroom I encounter. Maybe you're great too in Cedar Rapids. Um, so, that, so that's concern number one. Like, why, why would you leave out 92% of people when you're determining what's important? Like, why? I mean, Jack Dorsey wants to say it's more than that percentage, but it's really not when you're looking at real active accounts. Uh, number two, um, and here's where I'm going to go to, like, let's all love journalism and mass communication research because it really does inform what we know. Trusting news came out of insights from research. So, so number two, I would say, the bot activity is, you know, when we think about about bots, it's like, oh, did you know, did bot activity affect the 2016 election, whatever? But for journalists, it's the pulling of a quote from a tweet, from pulling of a tweet and putting it into a story um, as a as a quote, as if you are quoting a real person when you've done nothing <laughs> to actually verify that that is a real person. So I. 100% guarantee the Wisconsin State Journal is not going to have someone call into the newsroom, not say who they are, give a quote, and that's going to end up in the Sunday paper. It's not going to happen, but tweets get quoted. There's a study out of RJ School that actually got cited in the Mueller report about um, the percentage of quotes that ended up in news coverage that were indeed bots and sometimes Russian-backed bots. It's just not a practice that people should be engaging in. Um, there's another study, um, it's not published yet, and I can't remember where it's from. It's a little early on Saturday morning. Um, actually, this is point number three, that's, uh, that's documenting a really, really serious effect of um, speed on deliberation, on democratic deliberation. And Twitter is about speed. Like, it is jacking us all up all the time, and the Covington case is a, the perfect example of that. We are not being slow enough to actually have conversations, engage, and make decisions. So to the extent that we're speeding up, you know, bills moving through the legislature, the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism has a great piece on that, if you want to check it out, or we're talking about deciding whether, you know, a kid is a big fat racist or not. We're moving too fast for deliberation, and that is damaging to democracy. And then the last one, I think I'm on four, <laughs> I would say I've got 26, but I'm on four and then I'll stop. Uh, is that we know, like we 100% know 
that algorithms have embedded biases across the board. When people talk about bias in journalism, they have this false binary. It's all like left-right bias. And if I could kill anything, I would kill that. Like your concern about bias in news, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, I don't care. It's, it's not that binary that we should all be worried about. It's about whether um, you know an algorithm, the Twitter algorithm that delivers tech news to him so that he can write his columns has and it does have gender bias built into it because we're humans and we built them and we brought our bias into the algorithm. So to the extent that we're relying on those algorithms for news, we're just reinforcing the biases that are within them. I, but I don't feel strongly about any of that at all. I'll pick it up right from there. I think the important thing about algorithm journalism is it's also affecting the news that you see. Uh, and so it allows you to stay in an echo chamber, and the longer you do that, you don't necessarily know you're in a silo. Uh, and, and so as a consumer, that, that's a dangerous place to be, just as it is for the, the, the journalists. Uh, they don't know they're there, and then the consumer doesn't know that they're there either. Um, so it'll, you know, the algorithm learns that you like these types of stories. Well, I'll serve more of that. That means you're seeing less of something else. Uh, and that, that's a dangerous place uh, to be. I, I will say one of the benefits um, that, you know, and, and one of the concerns that I have is, you know, you can start to see how the conversation is unfolding in social media. And there are places where you can intentionally, you know, whether it's an editor in the process or whether it's the reporter monitoring it, uh, address their coverage to correct the course of if, you know, there's wild speculation or, that, you know, why things are veering off. And so you can use it sometimes in sparing places uh, to kind of adjust that narrative or address some of the uh, unspoken uh, things that maybe sources in the past have been hesitant to talk about, um, you know, why something happened or, you know, what, uh, you know, evidence that they've collected. Um, and, and I think that that you can influence coverage a little with that. I can I just say, I think that's a, a, an excellent point, and to circle back to your initial question, the reason we all realized that the Covington narrative was, uh, was not right um, was people challenging that narrative <laughs> online. You know, so, so, what's that? On Twitter. On, on Twitter, so coming back with other videos, but it was slower. <laughs> so if we all had waited till we had the information, we would have been better off. Oh, I'm sorry. So the Covington Catholic case, um, this was a kid who, what state was he even? Kentucky? I think it was Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. Covington, Kentucky. Uh, he was a high school student. There was, um, they were in, um, in D.C. for a march, and the March for Life, I think it was, and he was at the, at the Capitol, and uh, there was an eruption between a whole bunch of different people, but one was a high school student and then a Native American drummer. Right, and there was a, in some videos it seemed that the student was kind of, and the students were kind of being mocking, and there were some, there were charges that they were being racist with a Native American, and other videos there was kind of a clearer picture of what happened. They, um, the Covington student sued the Washington Post for $200 million, and the case was dismissed um, for the Washington Post reporting on the case before. I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the kind of false narrative happened in a, you know, very early in the story in the first day or so. Um, and then things got uh, ironed out and we got, a, I think, some a better picture of what happened. But I still, the whole story is still kind of shrouded in confusion and mystery. It probably wasn't even a new story to begin with. And um, uh, I think that, you know, the fact that 
people on Twitter for a day or so, and then kind of in the wider media, I mean, it was on cable a lot, um, were talking about it is just a result of, of Twitter. Just like someone posted a video on Twitter, people went crazy about that, and then it was all over uh, media for several days. Yeah, I think, so the, the existence, I think, and the, the, um, the influence of the way the algorithm is driving then, and the trickle-down effect that, you know, that has then on what we end up seeing on cable news, I think, is so important, but I guess I wonder that, I feel like, you know, for folks that there's, I feel like there's probably a wide swath of viewers and readers who are not also on social media and not aware of the ways in which that algorithm really is driving things, and then therefore really do, do rely on a reputation or see things through an ideological lens. And so, for example, um, when I was telling someone I know, I was telling them I was doing this panel, and they asked, well, hopefully, you know, who, who's on the panel? And I said, well, a guy from this paper and someone from the university and then someone from the New York Times. And they said, well, I hope that you can really get a fair, you know, it's not a super leftist in the tank talk about that. And, and I think that at the end of the day, like, what do we do when you know, at the end of the day, I don't know that people realize why they're seeing the news that they are or why it's filtering the way that it is. And there still is a sincere belief from both sides that reporters have a specific ideological agenda and we're choosing stories and writing them in a way to, you know, rather condescendingly enlighten people or, or advance an agenda. And you know, I mean, but, and, and to that point, I think it, it it's unfortunately comes from both sides. I mean, a, a question from the audience then that you guys can jump in on is, please comment on how the mainstream media can project credibility to the public when they are corporately owned, refuse to publish progressive voices in its editorial pages, and are completely dependent on advertising revenue. And so... No opinion in that comment. Well... Uh, I'll but, jump you know, in first. I, it's it's yeah, a, for it. the reputation alone and the way that, you know, I think is a real struggle. And I hear that a lot from when I'm trying to talk to people or get people to talk to me. I can jump in on that. Um, so our paper uh, in Cedar Rapids is, is, I believe, one of three that are employee-owned. Uh, and we hear the exact same thing all of the time from our community um, that, that we exist in. Um, we are actually, and one of the challenges that we face is we are less dependent on advertising. Uh, we are 67% dependent on our subscribers now uh, as retail has fallen off a cliff. What that means is that the price of the newspaper is gonna keep going up and there's a limit to that. And that's a different danger than exists um, necessarily with some of the, the chains of the Gannettes, the gatehouses, and some of the corporate ownership structures. But we have that same exact challenge um, every day um, and and I think that part of the reason that we want to be in projects like trusting news is to start to explain we need to do a better job of some of the iterative storytelling that we're doing because it's more often than trying to have a political agenda you can only advance a story um, as far as the facts support it um, and so sometimes people don't like where that story gets left and so there's a lot more of that iterative um, kind of uh, issue than there is necessarily the political bias. Um, and so I, I think that there are a lot of opinions, there are a lot of misperceptions even about what the media, um, you know, the media isn't one thing. It looks different in every market. Um, and I think that's one of the other things in the Trusting News Project. We have to explain a better job of, you know, I, I love the New York Times, but they have a whole different landscape than I do at the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Um, I mean, I feel like the, it's a good question. Why should you trust the media? Like, this is a question everyone should ask. Um, and 
I feel there's only really one answer to it, which is you have to figure out how the story, they have to tell you how they got the story, and it's a process question, right? So uh, I'm uh, reading uh, a book by my colleagues, She Said, which is about the Harvey Weinstein investigation. Um, and the Harvey Weinstein investigation that we did at the Times uh, was a product of uh, talking to a lot of sources, explaining exactly uh, what they said, backing it up with documentary evidence, you know, do financial documents with, uh, about settlements, um, with uh, kind of on-the-record uh, first-person um, uh, testimony about what happened, about this uh, um, kind of un the difficulty of denying all of these different women who came forward. Uh, it was a product of, you know, if, if there was uh, one anonymous woman who came forward and said this thing happened to her, um, Harvey Weinstein would have been able to say, you know, deny it, and that would have been the end of the story. The reason that, you know, people believe that story, the reason that there's a ongoing criminal trial, the reason that, you know, we've had the whole Me Too movement is because, you know, in all of these stories that we did, there was just kind of undeniable evidence that was brought forward. And, you know, you can see stories like the, um, you know, several years ago, there was a story about, um, in Rolling Stone magazine about, um, the uh, an alleged uh, rape case at I think it was the University of Virginia, yeah, um, which totally a story totally fell apart and it set back you know victim victims rights movements for a while. It set back the whole um, you know idea. All of these kinds of um, stories were set back because the Rolling Stone didn't kind of do a good enough job. Um, and I think there's you know that's the basic answer. Like you shouldn't trust. Um, news outlets because of the brand or the name or anything like that. Like, you can only trust the process. So I, my single favorite comment on Media Trust ever um, was a tweet last December when there was the romaine lettuce recall um, because it, w it was tainted with E. coli. And I don't even remember who did it, but someone tweeted, all right, if it's all fake news, eat all the lettuce right now. Because how did you know that this lettuce had been recalled? You heard it on CBS Morning News. You read it in the Cap Times. You saw an AP story that got, you know, someone posted to Facebook, don't eat the lettuce. So I am never going to defend all of journalism as trustworthy. It's not all trustworthy. You know, there's like stupid ratings grab stories on local TV. Um, the New York Times makes mistakes. Rolling Stone I think was really badly motivated in that UVA rape story. Like they went around to a bunch of campuses to try to find the most sensational story. And that's why it fell apart. Really the story of rape on campus is not about a sensational case. It's about how common the cases are. So they missed the story. So I'm never going to defend all of it. But in general, I find journalists to be people who are motivated by public service. They're trying to do their job neutrally. They're trying to get information out that they think is valuable. That's the dominant story. Do they go wrong? Yes. But I think that I, I mean, I trust my local news. And by the way, I pay for it. Like if I don't want excessive advertiser influence or excessive sponsor influence, I need to give them my money so that they can do their work. If you know, if a if a newspaper, if the Cedar Rapids, what is it? Gazette. Gazette. I, was gonna, I was stuck between Tribune and Gazette. If they have really strong subscriber base, and the local car dealer says, "I'm going to pull my advertising if you don't do X," if he has a robust budget, he can say, "I'm I am." I don't care if you're going to pull that. And that's where we were in the 1980s. That's not where we are today when it comes to revenue. So I also think journalism ethics is not just for journalists. It's for 
consumers as well. And you have this thing going on in your mind called motivated reasoning, where you want information that reinforces your worldview. We all have an obligation as citizens in a democracy to be challenged. So if you are a conservative and you think that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel isn't conservative enough, well, then it's, it's doing its job. It's not there to be your outlet. If you are a progressive and you think that there's not enough of pro a progressive bend um, in, in the coverage that you have, well, you have outlets to go, go read Vox. Go read the progressive. It's named that. Um, we, I think we... I don't like to be uncomfortable. I like to think that I'm right all the time, but I, I, I can't function as a citizen if that's what I do. So one of my little tricks, I set my, my little, you know how when you open your browser, you can set it to a default homepage, and I set it to a different one, a different outlet, so every day of the week. So sometimes it'll open up to the New York Times, and sometimes it's going to open up to Fox News, and it's just going to challenge me. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. One question from the audience, and, and I sort of had a thought as well, just about to what degree, especially when you're teaching students as well, because I think that, and, and like you said, every journalist I've known, and obviously I, I am one, but are, are two, so we're well-meaning and really are, if, if you're getting into the game at this, at this juncture, generally you really care about it and are, are moved to, to do a good job and do it ethically. But I do think that, you know, we're all human. We all do have experiences that have shaped our views. There's implicit and explicit bias. And I wonder to what degree it's important really as individuals to really examine what those are for ourselves and how that might affect the, the choices that we make when we're covering something. Because there are choices at every single juncture of the way, like m many of them that you don't even realize before you read a story. And so, um, so that's a thought, and there's a thought from the audience as well talking about how some in the media argue that objectivity has been replaced with fairness in news, and maybe there is there any such thing as objectivity? Are we really objective? Uh, so is there a difference between the two, and in what ways are they different? So anyone who wants to jump in on objectivity and fairness and the, you know, the degree to which they exist or are different would be. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks. Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just say that the, there's, there's some really great research out there. I don't want to go into it at length, but there's great research on polarization and the, um, when the fairness doctrine went away and how we are where we are when it comes to cable news and um, talk radio. So that's worth looking up. Um, I think there is a difference between objectivity and fairness. Um, objectivity is not anything we can ever be. It's not a goal that can be achieved. So in some ways, it was just this wishful thinking that maybe led to some really problematic practices. Um, I think I hear I hear newsrooms. I think you probably are much better at um, at sharing this, but I hear newsrooms talking much more about fairness and neutrality. Uh, that you know we sort of don't have a dog in this fight is is the is the way they're going at it because there is this recognition that there's a great researcher at the University of Minnesota who's like journalists are people too, <laughs> so we talk about how you know everyone brings their own perceptions and biases to the party. Well, you are as well, and you need to confront that. And I've spent a lot of time confronting that from my own reporting past. I was a police and 
courts reporter, and I missed the rise of mass incarceration. Why did I miss it? Because I never got out of my like little white suburban bubble that I had been raised in. If I had actually been in communities of color, I would have seen much earlier, or seen at all, the devastation that was happening, and it's really one of the great regrets of my life um, because I was really good at microethics. Do you name this victim or not name this victim? Do you say the burglary happened at an address or on a, in a you know, broader location? I worked really hard to be good at that, but I miss the macroethics of like what was going on in my community. And that happened not because I was like unobjective or decided that I wasn't going to chase objectivity, but because I hadn't confronted my own biases. I mean, that that um, mass incarceration story is an example of how uh, social media and sort of the Internet in general has, you know, contrary to the terrible stuff I was saying about it earlier, (laughs) it's, uh, you know, given a lot of reporters and journalists in in newsrooms all over, like um, an ability to look outside their bubble, look at uh, people that, you know, the kinds of people who are not in their newsrooms, uh, you know, who, sh- who should be in their newsrooms but are not and are not kind of being at the table talking about, like, stories to cover, um, you know, uh, movements like uh, Black Lives Matter has has infiltrated, you know, changed how newsrooms think about those kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, it has given us, um, in that example and others, like an ability to um, look at issues in a much broader way. You know, I think that there's a, there's methods um, that that are important there too, um, and 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 I think that some of that is how often do reporters step back and ask the questions of, am I interviewing a few people that look the same too often? Um, you know, and those are kind of those things that get lost when you're racing to constantly report something first on social media. Um, how often do you take the because you bring your own experiences to work as a reporter every day Uh, and and sometimes how often are you interacting with someone who thinks about it differently you should intentionally as a reporter be setting up those opportunities to do that to see other perspectives if as a reporter you're only spending time thinking uh, the way that you have then you're going to put out work that doesn't challenge uh, your own assumptions and beliefs And, and if you're doing that regularly just as the routine um, you should be feeling uncomfortable as a reporter. It's easier not to call somebody who's accused of doing something heinous. It's better that you do uh, because you're going to find out something. Um, it, it's better to talk to their relatives and understand more about, hey, how did we get here? Um, and you're going to be a better reporter when you take the time to do those basic things. Um, Farhad, one of the things that we were discussing prior to the panel, too, was the the fact-checking, the advent of that. and. Fact-checking in the sense of we've seen, we've seen that a lot with the national media, like fact-checking Trump and kind of the fixation on, on, on that and the way that that can spiral into other stories. And so your thought there was, is it even necessary anymore? Like, why are we, why are we writing these stories? What are your thoughts? Maybe you can elaborate a bit yeah. about that. And um, Yeah, yeah I, um, I've long wondered about fact-checking. Fact-checking became this kind of institution uh, about a decade ago or more. Um, you know, in, in the early 2000s, there were a number of kind of fact-checking organizations like PolitiFact, um, and now it's sort of spiraled into, uh, you know, every newsroom has kind of a fact-checking operation when you see a debate uh, on TV or, like, the president makes a speech or something like that. Um, there's, you know, immediate fact-checking, and, uh, you know, with, with Trump, it's, it's become kind of an, a whole industry because there's a, a lot to fact check. Um, 
And, uh, but you know, it's not, it's clearly like not working. Uh, there's, there's the, the, the same thing, the thing that's happened as fact check, as more newsrooms have gotten, um, you know, bigger and bigger fact checking operations, uh, politicians have not limited the number of things they say that aren't, uh, you, you know, that aren't true. Uh, that has also gone up. So it seems to me, um, and then there's this, um, you know, there's a, there's, a no, there's a lot of research that suggests that uh, when you repeat a lie, when even to fact check it, um, it, when the lie is sort of all over and people are fact checking it and saying, you know, a good example was um, in 2009 in, um, in the deliberations over the healthcare bill, uh, there was the, Sarah Palin started the meme about uh, death panels, and um, you know everyone, everyone in the media was fact-checking this idea about death panels, and the effect of it was everyone was talking about how the um, bill was going to, uh, you know, perhaps have death panels, and uh, it became this thing, um, and it became this thing because people were saying it was false in the media. Um, but there's uh, there's an effect, a psychological effect, where like familiarity. Um, kind of unconsciously suggests that something is true or worth paying attention to. Um, and I really worry about that. We have these, you know, um, it's become kind of, um, I, I think it's become uh, an easy way for journalists and for newsrooms to feel like they're uh, doing something in response to, you know, the the kind of blizzard of lies out there. Um, but it's, I don't think it's actually working a lot. And I feel like we have to figure out some better uh, better way than kind of this fact-checking operation to to tell people that you know what's happening in the world. Uh, one of my colleagues, Lucas Graves, is one of the world's great experts on um, fact-checking. I highly, highly recommend his book. It's it's worth a read. Um, you're right. Some of the research is disappointing. Um, turns out that the motivated reasoning we bring to reading anything, we bring to the fact checks. So, um, um, for instance, uh, after the sort of fake news um, issues in the 2016 campaign, Facebook uh, got into this, or pulled together this consortium of fact checkers, and they started labeling things as fact checked and false, and you had to acknowledge that you were sharing something false before it could be shared, and I, don't, I think they actually, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they abandoned that function yeah, it's not, because well, it's, it works in some different way, but yeah, yeah, it's not exactly the same. Yeah, um, but what they found was that um, the people believed. So you know, uh, Pope endorses Donald Trump. Um, it's false, right? And it gets fact checked, and it's fact checked as false. And I go to share it because I believe in Trump, and I want to send that out to the world. And I believe it's true, right? It's not. I don't think that I'm sharing a false story. I think that it's true, and I go to share it, and I get this little. <laughs> thing that tells me, well, I'm sh sharing a false story, and I have to say, acknowledge, I'm going to share this false story. But I share it because I don't think it's false. Now, I think the fact checkers are just biased against Trump. So the story is still true in my mind, um, and I continue to share it. So it's, it's disappointing. There are some small gains that um, have been documented with fact checking. Uh, one of the, I would argue, mo most positive parts of it is just reinforcing the, the view that journalists are about facts. Like they are about verifying facts, that this is our job within a democracy is to challenge authority and say, is what you're saying true? And that function is, is important even if it's only modest gains that you get in what people believe. It, it, it's the institutionalization of it is reinforcing the mission of journalism. And I, and I think that's important. You know, I, I think that one of the challenges is, um, you know, those fact checks 
you can really hang yourself if you're, uh, again, I'm gonna sound like a broken record, using the wrong methods. If you're trying to race out there and, and put something out there by just web checking, well, you're putting your credibility as an organization, uh, that's like playing Russian roulette with it. Uh, because if you're gonna call attention that we're doing a fact check uh, and, and then you get it wrong, <laughs> I mean, you're wearing more egg on your face. And so organizations that, that do this really do have to be deliberate about what is, a, you know, what is our process for doing this? You know, are we more about being quick and in the moment? You know, if we're, if we're trying to do that, can we really do that? Um, do we have the resources to do that? You know, full disclosure, we have a fact check team. Uh, it's been an interesting uh, debate uh, in our newsroom. Uh, there have been at times, uh, there was an incident after the gubernatorial race in Iowa. Uh, we had accepted a third party ad. We, uh, two weeks before the race, uh, had you know been threatened to sue, but be sued by the Democratic uh, nominee uh, or the Democratic candidate, um, and I was the one against my fact-checking team, uh, saying that you know, hey guys, we can't. This isn't ready to go. We need to do more work. Everything that we reported was factually true. But there, the contention was that we were going to put something out there that you know, would get people talking about something, and that illegitimate argument was exactly the goal that the people were seeking. Um, and so we were in a very strange place in trying to, you know, do you run this, do you not? Um, and ultimately we ran it, but we had to go through a series of revisions because um, you know, it was our integrity on the line, and I, in this era, don't want a lawsuit. Um, two weeks before a governor's race. You don't want a lawsuit ever. Ever. That's true. Um, so one other question we have from the audience is, how can news outlets remain accessible to folks who may not be able to afford to pay for their news, but still ensure those voices are heard while not relying, while still not relying on ad revenue? Yeah, I think this is a, a difficult question in general. Um, it, it goes to sort of the heart of the problem of, of journalism in the modern age, which is this business model problem. So, uh, you know, the advertising um, has fallen off be, uh, in in pretty much all news um, in, you know, national news, news outlets and also um, local news outlets um, for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, the internet is the big reason. Um, and so to replace that, we've tried to come up with a d number of different revenue sources at the times we um, are getting mo most we're getting the majority of our revenue now from uh, subscriptions um, and uh, the kind of goal is to you know become a subscription first business and then have uh, you know, advertising and other kinds of revenues be a smaller source of it um, and that uh, it, it presents this kind of in some ways it has this kind of clean um, deal, you know, you that someone's paying you for the news and, and you're giving them the product, although it creates these other challenges. One is, you know, it's, it's far less accessible, um, you know, if you are charging people, uh, if you're putting up a paywall and you're charging people to read to read the news, um, you're, there's a whole bunch of people in the world who, you know, can't afford it. Um, and, you know, um, especially for an outlet like the Times, like we strive to be a global news publication that covers the entire world and therefore like the, the audience is the entire world. And um, you know, people like me who write for the Times want everyone to be able to read it. So it creates that challenge. The other challenge it creates is that um, you're beholden to your readers in a, in a way that might 
create some conflict and tension. Like, you know, now when we write an, uh, an opinion piece or cover a news story in a way that people don't like or we make a mistake, um, people can, you know, call up en masse and cancel the paper. And that, you know, threatens our revenue in a way that's... Um, threatens our survival in a way that's different from kind of an advertiser saying that, you know, they'll um, pull advertising, but it's, um, you know, similar pressures and um, it creates this kind of, um, it, it has a risk of creating this like echo chamber or kind of a subservient relationship to your reader. So I think there's challenges in both. I feel like the answer here is we need some, um, you know, diversity in revenue sources, but, um, you know, for a lot of places, you know, the Times and everyone else, it's, it's difficult. There's a challenge there. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that time that that challenge is there for the times, but you're not in crisis. Like there is a crisis in journalism, and it is local news. It is Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It is Wausau, Wisconsin, um, Youngstown, Ohio. I, I was gonna Google for the population of Youngstown, Ohio, while you were talking, but I thought people would think I was texting. Um, so I don't know if anybody knows how big Youngstown is, but it's a sizable community, and it just lost its local newspaper completely. Not we're going to publish two days a week and be online. Gone. Gone. Another chain is trying to maybe come in and, and um, do something completely digital there. But that's where we're headed. We're, we're building the, or we're, we're experiencing these places, sizable places, that have no local news source. They're, they're in a desert of news. And that's horrible. It's really horrible. But the point that questioner makes is, okay, I can afford to subscribe to all of these different outlets, but what about people who can't afford them? And that's where I, I would make an argument that, yes, you should invest in your local news, but you should also invest in other civic institutions that can carry that news forward. So I am a big believer in public libraries as a central civic anchor within a community and a public library that, that can give out a digital subscription that people can, you know, consume um, their local news outlet. You know, you can always watch local TV and local TV is, a, is an important news source. It's very trusted. It's the, it's the, of all news sources within a community, if it has a TV station, that is the most trusted source. So that's free, that's free to you, advertiser supported. Um, but I think other civic institutions have to also value news. The community I live in, Fitchburg, lost its newspaper and the city paid to bring it back. <laughs> the city of Fitchburg pays for that newspaper. They have a big wall that they put up and um, between the two the city does not dictate coverage but they believed that they needed a newspaper and they invested in it and so I think it's not, again, the crisis in journalism isn't only going to be solved within journalism. It has to be solved within communities. Youngstown has about 65,000 people. Okay, thank you. <laughs> And I wasn't texting. Um, you know, I, I, I would echo what, what you just said. And I think uh, the, the crisis in local news is really going to come to a head in the next three to five years. Um, that's our projection, um, as well as many others. Um, and I think depending on, on where you're at, um, that's something that has my attention and keeps me up at night. Um, but I agree with the, the process of, you know, I think that this is something that we need to do at the very local level, uh, partnering with groups like the libraries uh, and community foundations uh, and, and other social services to find ways to open up subscriptions uh, to, to uh, individuals. Whether you have to come to the library, hopefully not, uh, because then there are access questions to that. But, you know, 
there are there have to be ways, and that's something that you know we've re recently just started to talk about um, in in our community. Is how do you make that accessible to everybody? And we are down the path of libraries and uh, foundations because that seems to be uh, a, a true partner for us um, that believes in what we're doing, and we have a lot of alignment in kind of missions. Can I be in the shameless plug um, zone for a second and say the last Friday in April, the Center for Journalism Ethics is hosting a day-long conference on saving local news. It's going to be over at the Wisconsin Institutes for Discovery, and it's free. Great. Uh, so we have about <laughs> we have about five minutes left, and I have two more questions I'd like to get to. Um, you know, coming off that rather somber note, one question from the audience is: Give us some hope that journalism is not doomed by the fire hose of sources of biased information, partisan echo chambers, confirmation biased, and un. Um, I don't have much hope. Uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> Killing the smalls. So. Um, I go back and forth. Uh, I I feel like there are real moments of triumph in journalism where we change the world. Uh, the Me Too movement, the sexual harassment stories um, was an example of that. There are um, also real reasons to be very worried. I mean, I think that you, you guys are right. The, the local news problem is huge and as far as I can tell, intractable. Um, there are, you know, a number of experiments and um, news startups and others that are trying to figure out ways to do things there. But I don't have a lot of hope there. Um, I feel like we are also we also have this kind of larger crisis about institutions and our lack of trust in institutions that you know affects the news media as a whole. Um, and uh, we have this increasing, um, you know antagonistic relationship between uh, politicians, you know, not in the United, not just in the United States, not just between like the media and Trump, but kind of all over the world. Like it's become um, a way for to advance um, in politics, a very kind of effective way to attack the news media. Um, and I, you know, I, I think there, there are sort of small reasons to be optimistic, but overall I remain kind of, you know, not that hopeful. You can follow that, Zach. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I still am excited to come to work every day, um, and and I I love the work that we're doing. Um, and you know, but I share the the deep concern because uh, you know some of the the questions of how much time do people pay attention to what's going on in their community and and to their democracy. Uh, that what rights do they have? Those are issues that, if they don't care about that, journalism is you know seven or eight points down the road, um, and I'm you know concerned about that. How much do we spend time thinking about you know the the communities that we live in? Um, other things that you know aren't super encouraging um, is that you know most people, uh, if they were given the opportunity to subscribe to something digitally, choose Netflix. Uh, they aren't choosing a news source. And I think it's 51% who do choose news sources will only choose one. And I think it's between two national news organizations. That becomes deeply concerning to me um, at the local level because we're fighting even harder because we'd probably be your third or fourth subscription. Um, and, and that's just the difference uh, in, in how you know, things have evolved in how people are consuming things. Uh, I do think journalism and you know, fact-checking and, and the work that we do 
uh, plays a key role uh, in, in you know, our communities uh, across the country. But I do worry if people you know, don't see information as a commodity, then we're screwed. <laughs> well, there's a reason that I wanted to back clean up on this question, and it's going to circle back to my first question, that it is my distinct privilege to stand in front of classrooms at the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, before some students who should make you incredibly optimistic. So some of my uh, grads are here. I see a current student, Natalie. Put your hands up if you've been in one of my classrooms. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, let me tell you. They have got game to bring. There is this Hollywood narrative that this is a generation of selfie-taking, vaping, self-centered nutballs who are unduly influenced by the Kardashians and the Jenners. That is not the experience that I have, right, Maddie? Like, you, you're not a Kendall fan, okay? Um, they, they believe in what they're doing. And the one big change from when I started doing this 20 years ago to doing it now um, is that some of my best students are not trying to come out of the J school and get a gig at the New York Times. They're going to lacrosse. They're going to the Verona paper. So Scott Gerard just jumped from Verona, I think, to being a Cap Times reporter because Nagasi went to law school. <laughs> um, but they're they're committed to their communities. It's really an interesting thing to me. It's not they're not looking for the star power. They're looking to have influence and be, you know, public servants within these local contexts. And that gives me tremendous optimism. I am not going to sugarcoat it. I don't sugarcoat it in my classrooms. I tell them they're going into newsrooms with small staffs and a lot of financial worries. But they really bring game to this, and it makes me optimistic. I agree completely that we are. We've, we seem to be in this very tenuous international moment right now, but history tells us we've been there before, and great generations have risen to get us out of it, and I'm very, very optimistic about these young people. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go to work on Monday. <laughs> okay, so we, got, we have like two minutes really quick. This is such a great um, emblematic money question. What sources do you recommend for unbiased reporting? Real quick, top of mind, go. <laughs> He's gonna say his own. Uh, read the Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the Cap Times. Yeah. I would say the Cedar Rapids Gazette. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're gonna have bias in anything you read, but generally, if, if their goal is to be a neutral news outlet, pound for pound, that's what you're getting. I mean, my real answer is don't just read one thing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I, I don't think there is one source. If there were, that would be fantastic, and we wouldn't have spent the last hour wringing our hands the way that we have. Um, I, I think there are, um, you know, uh, an educated person is reading lots of different sources from lots of different perspectives. Oh, I have one more thing, which is don't watch cable news. <laughs> yes! Right, well, from 6 to 10. Yeah. 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 No, I, I feel like um, if I were to point kind of to one source of, like, daily troublemaking in America. It's cable TV. Well, on that note, thank you for joining us today. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your panels. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.